1. Chatterbox founded by J. Erskine Clark. M. A. Chatterbox. Cruisers in the Clouds. I. The two brothers of Anne and Helene and their paper balloon. In the chimney corner of a cottage in Avignon. A man sat one day watching the smoke as it rose in changing clouds from the smoldering embers to the sooty cavern above. And if those who did not know him had supposed from his attitude that he was a most idle person, they would have been very far from the truth. It was in the days when the combined fleets of Europe were thundering with cannon on the rocky walls of Gibraltar, in the hope of driving the English out, and, the long effort having proved in vain, Joseph Montgolfier, of whom we have spoken, fell to wondering, as he sat by the fire, how the great task could be accomplished, if the soldiers and sailors could only fly, he thought, there would be no difficulty, he looked at a picture of the rock lying on the table beside him, and saw many places on its summit very suitable for such flying foes to settle on, but, God, who could give them wings, he turned to the fireplace, and his eyes fell once more on the column of smoke, silently, silently rising, and yet not so silently as the world might think, for though he had not yet quite understood its meaning, Joseph Montgolfier had been striving for some time past to learn the lesson which he felt sure it was to teach him at last, and today the secret came out, thoughts so active as his did not take long to get from Gibraltar back to the smoke, and they had not been there many minutes when Montgolfier jumped from his seat, and, throwing open the door of the room, called to his landlady, a great idea had occurred to him, and, to carry it out, he required some light, silky material, called taffeta, this the good landlady quickly supplied, and when she entered the room some time later, she found her lodger holding the taffeta, which he had formed into a bag, over the fire, as the smoke filled it, it certainly showed an inclination to rise, but once out of reach of the warmest glow it toppled over and collapsed on the floor, the landlady watched the experiments for some time in silence, then, with a little laugh, she said, God, M. Montgolfier, why do you not tie the fire to the bag, the great inventor had not thought of that, but he did not require to be told twice, and obtaining a little bunch of some inflammable material, he tied it under his bag and set it on fire, the smoke and heat inflated the tiny balloon, and it rose at once to the ceiling, a few minutes later the inventor called for pen and ink, and wrote the following letter, prepare without delay a supply of taffeta and cordage, and you shall see one of the most astonishing things in the world, this hasty note was addressed to M. Stephen Montgolfier at Anone, near Lyon, and never was a request made that was more likely to be carefully and promptly granted, Stephen Montgolfier, like his brother, had busy thoughts concerning means for rising in the air, and when Joseph returned from Avignon, they set to work with stronger hope of realizing their dreams, as they were the largest and best paper makers in Anone, they did not lack material for carrying on experiments, and when these experiments had repeatedly resulted in success, they decided that the rest of the world should be admitted into their secret, a large balloon, made of paper and taffeta, should be inflated in the public square, and be allowed to rise before the eyes of any who might gather there to see it and they carried out this determination on June 5, 1783. On that day there assembled at Anone a number of local celebrities, and no better opportunity could have been chosen. In the public square a large circular space was railed off to keep the crowd at a proper distance, and in the center of this space rose a wooden platform to accommodate the new cloud ship and the fire which was to fill it with the power of flight. 
Never had the brothers Montgolfier had a busier morning, never had the good people of Anona seen such excitement in their quiet village. The crowd had gathered from far and near, and watched the busy workers round the mysterious platform with widely different thoughts. Some were silent with expectation, some jeered noisily, but, unconscious of praise or laughter, the two brothers directed their little band of workmen, confident of coming triumph. At last the specially invited guests had all arrived, and when they were accommodated with seats, one of the brothers made a little speech of explanation, ending with the remark that he would apply a torch to the heap of chopped straw and wool beneath the platform. The smoke arising from these different kinds of fuel formed, when combined, he said, the most suitable gas for raising a substance into the air. These diligent brothers, however, had only partly learned the truth as yet or they would have known that it was the heat, and not the smoke, which lifted the paper bag, the torch was put to the straw, the yellow flames leapt up, and the smoke, passing through a hole in the platform, entered the open end of the globe-shaped bag, which up to the present had, of course, been lying flat and empty, instantly a paper dome seemed to rise from the platform, this continued to grow in size, while the workmen stood round in a ring, each holding a rope which passed to the top of the dome. The ropes grew longer and longer as the balloon filled, and it soon became hard work to hold them. But on no account were the men to let go until the word was given. When at last the paper walls were extended to their uppermost size, the wondering spectators saw a huge ball of some 110 feet in circumference, swaying uneasily to and fro with every breath of air, as though straining at its fetters. At last came the word. The ropes were released, and the great body rose rapidly into the air, followed by a thunder of applause. With straining eyes the crowd followed that wondrous flight, higher and higher, nearer and nearer to the clouds, till what a few moments before was so very imposing in size seemed no bigger than a child's plaything. Then, caught in a current of air, it drifted out of sight forever. Such was the launching of the first ship in the new navigation of the clouds. On the place from which it started a handsome monument has been erected, bearing the names of the two builders Joseph and Stephen Montgolfier the brothers who always worked together, sharing equally the fame that their discovery brought, and never selfishly seeking for self-advancement. Recent searchings seem to show that the principal honor is due to Joseph, the elder, and, if one of the many stories told in detail and repeated at the beginning of this article may be relied upon, Surely we ought to also remember with some praise the unknown woman who let lodgings in Avignon. John Lee, the way to win. I wish I could win one. Alas he was sighing, when sitting quite still in a meadow one day, and thinking of prizes not won without trying not won by mere wishing as time slips away. And as she sat wishing she heard a hen clucking, she lifted her eyes and that hen she could see. And soon it was rapidly scratching and chucking as gay and as busy and glad as could be. She watched how it struggled to obtain a treasure, a thing it was wishing for, something to eat, a worm to be dug for with patience and pleasure. T'was found, and it gave Henny Penny a treat. That worm the hen wished for she could not have eaten unless she had scratched it right up from the ground, and Mabel had seen that the hen was not eaten by carefully working the prize had been found. So Mabel thought quietly over the matter, and learned the good lesson. No prize can be won by thinking and wishing by waiting and chatter, and soon she jumped up and to work she begun, D.H. read in vain, Prince, the parrot, was a proud and happy bird, he was proud of his gorgeous red and green feathers, of his ability to say pretty pull and how do, 
and, above all, of his fine gilded cage, which stood just inside the breakfast room window, but, in an evil hour, Prince, watching the birds which flew to and fro outside the glass, was struck with a desire for freedom, he thought no more of his splendid feathers, or his handsome cage, but, from morning till night, he wondered how he should get out, there was not wit enough in his parrot brain to make him understand that the cold English garden was not in the least like the flowery forest of his native island, his chance came one snowy morning, the French window had been opened, after breakfast, that someone might go out and scatter crumbs for the robins, the cage door happened to be open too, and observed, Prince darted swiftly out, and perched amid the leafless boughs of one of the high trees on the lawn, he was free, but, oh, how cold it was, how wretched he was already beginning to feel, he crouched shivering on a bough, and when the snow began to fall again in large, wet flakes, he was more miserable than he had ever been in all his petted life, paralyzed with cold and fear, he clung to the tree, too unhappy even to cry out and let people know where he was, poor prince, he must soon have died if someone had not noticed the empty cage, the alarm was given at once, but it was some time before the bird was seen on his lofty perch, when they did see him, and everybody called and coaxed poor prince, dear prince, to come down, he was too stupefied with cold and misery to do as he was told, at last Tom, the page boy, volunteered to climb the tree and tried to reach prince, it was rather a dangerous task, as the bark was slippery from the frost and snow, but Tom persevered, and, by dint of much effort, got hold of the parrot, Prince was restored to his cage, but he had caught a bad cold, and never again held up his head as jauntily, or seemed as proud of himself, as he had done in former days, C.J. Blake, a kindly visit, Willie Mortimer was a cripple, but he did not often complain of his lot, nor, as a rule, did he feel very unhappy about it, his love for drawing and painting was such a resource to him, that when he could hobble on his crutches down to the shore, he was never tired of watching the sea and the boats, and of trying to make sketches which he could work up into pictures at home, as he sat in the window of the little cottage, but it was a year since the accident which had made the amputation of his leg a necessity, and for the first time Willie's cheerfulness was beginning to forsake him, he could not help noticing how worn and anxious his mother looked, and he knew how hard it was for her to earn enough money, by her plain sewing, to keep up the little house, until the previous summer she had let lodgings, but she could not manage it when she was nursing Willie, and waiting on him after he left the hospital, and this year no people had applied for her rooms yet, one of her former lodgers had been an artist, and it was he who, being struck with Willie's talent, had given him instruction, and taught him all he knew about art, but the boy was now thirsting for more knowledge, if only he could be trained to be an artist, that was his dream, and often he would sit at his little window, looking over the blue waters of the bay, while his eyes would fill with tears as he thought how impossible it was for a little ignorant boy to paint pictures which would have any beauty, his pathetic face attracted Dora and Elsie Vaughn as they passed the cottage every day, they were having a perfectly lovely time in this Devonshire village, where their father had taken a house for the summer holidays, Mr. Vaughn was a celebrated artist, and Willie would watch him eagerly as he passed with his canvas and sketching materials, and would long for a sight of the pictures which would soon be so famous, that poor little crippled boy does look sad, Dora said to her sister, I think we ought to go and visit him and take him some flowers, 
but he is not always a prisoner, Elsie answered, I see him on the beach sometimes with his crutches, and he is often trying to sketch boats and things, anyway it must be dull for him, and we might cheer him up a little, Dora persisted, it is rather tiresome, though, when there are such heaps of lovely things to do, and the holidays do fly so quickly, Elsie argued, for she was not as unselfish as her sister, and did not much care to give up her own pleasure, however, Dora had her way, for Elsie knew from former experience that if she were to really set on a thing, it saved trouble to give in at once and make the best of it, she even found a box of chocolates not quite empty, and with the sweets that were left, and some of Dora's, was able to fill a smaller box, then they begged some cakes from the cook, and hunted up a couple of story books from the number they had brought with them, and in the end had quite a well-filled basket for Elsie to carry. Dora picked a bunch of roses and then they set out for the cottage. When they arrived Willie was sitting before his easel, looking sadly at his latest attempt at a picture, and thinking how poor it was compared with the scene his imagination painted. He was so shy and so much overcome by the honor of their visit that he could hardly find words to welcome them. But the girls' exclamations of delight when they saw his picture soon set him at ease. How lovely! Dora cried. Did you really paint it yourself? I have watched you sketching on the beach. But I never thought you were so clever, Elsie told him. And Willie blushed with pleasure at their praise. Then he opened the box on which his painting material stood, and showed them all the pictures and sketches he had done in the past year. You see, miss, he said to Dora, now I cannot get about much. It passes the time, but I do wish I had somebody to tell me all the faults in them, and help me to do better. We must bring father to see them, he will not be backward about pointing out faults, said Elsie, laughing, though I cannot find any myself. But Mr. Vaughn is such a great artist, he would never look at my poor little pictures, Willie said, flushing at the very thought. He may be a great artist, but he is a very kind father, Elsie told him and he nearly always does what we ask him. Certainly he did not disappoint his daughters this time. Moreover, he was amazed at the progress the boy had made with so little help, and saw that he was worth training. Your son has great natural talent, he said to Willie's mother. I am even inclined to think he may be a genius. You must allow me to make it easy for him to be trained in the best schools. And so poor crippled Willie, instead of being a burden to his mother, became her pride and joy, beginning a career which was one day to make him even more famous than the artist who had given him a helping hand, M.H. The Boy Tramp, chapter I. The first time I saw Captain Dalton, we were living in lodgings at Acacia Road, St. John's Wood, my Aunt Marion had breakfasted in bed, and I having nothing better to do, wandered downstairs to what our landlady called the hall, where I stood watching Jane as she dipped a piece of flannel into her pail and smacked it down noisily onto the oilcloth, until there was a loud ringing of the street door bell, as Jane rose from her knees, rubbing her red hands on her apron, I edged along the passage, keeping touch of the wall, and staring and abashed at the tall, well-dressed, distinguished-looking visitor, does Miss Everard live here, he inquired, yes, sir, answered Jane, I should like to see her, Master Jack, cried Jane, do you know if your aunt has come down yet? But as I was on the point of running upstairs to find out, the visitor called me back. Half a second, he said. Are you young Everard? Yes, I replied, and fixing an eyeglass in his left eye, he looked at me with considerable curiosity, 
Tell your aunt, he continued, that Captain Dalton wishes to see her. And upon that I ran off, shouting, Aunt Marion, Aunt Marion, at the top of my voice, Aunt Marion, I repeated, entering the sitting room, Captain Dalton is downstairs, and he wants to speak to you, Captain Dalton, she murmured, shall I bring him up, I asked, rising from the sofa, and laying down the newspaper which she had been reading, Aunt Marion walked towards the door, she must have been near her 35th year at that time. About the same age as our visitor, she was tall, fair, and nice-looking, good-tempered, and perhaps a little careless. That morning she was wearing a light blue dressing gown, although it was past eleven o'clock. Yes, bring Captain Dalton up, she answered, and asked him to wait a few minutes. As she went to the bedroom, I returned to the street door, where Captain Dalton stood gazing at Jane as she continued to smack the oilcloth with her wet flannel. You are to come upstairs, I cried, and following me to the sitting room, he sat down and began to stare afresh. So you are poor Frank Everard's boy, he said. Did you know my father? I demanded, for I had no recollection of either a parent, or of any relative with the exception of Aunt Marion, under whose charge I had moved about from lodging house to lodging house since I was four years of age. Well, said Captain Dalton, if I had not known him. I should not be here today. He became silent for a few moments, and then added, as he took my hand and drew me against his knee, Your father once saved my life. Jack, how old are you? He asked. Eleven next month, I replied, and, somewhat to my disappointment, Aunt Marion entered the room as I spoke, wearing the dress in which she went to church on Sundays. I have often heard of you, Captain Dalton, she said, as he rose from his chair. Although I have never seen you before. Oh. Well. He answered. I have been in India the last five years. I came home last week. And from a few words I heard at the club. I gathered that poor Frank Everard's boy and Marion's cheeks flushed. And she held her head a little further back. I have done the best I could for him. She exclaimed. I am certain of that. He continued. But. Anyhow. I made inquiries. And. After some difficulty succeeded in discovering your address, perhaps, he added, glancing in my direction, you would not mind sparing me a few minutes alone, to my great disgust, she told me to run away, so that I returned to the damp passage, which was now deserted by Jane, after waiting there what seemed a long time, I saw Captain Dalton on the stairs, after bidding me goodbye, he let himself out of the house, Aunt Marion, I cried, before there was time to reach the sitting room, he says that father saved his life, well, Jack, he said what was quite true, but, I continued, why did Captain Dalton call father, poor Frank Everard, was he really poor, Aunt Marion sighed before she answered, goodness knows, he ought not to have been, she said, your father had a lot of money when he came of age, but he was foolish enough to spend it all, and the consequence was that nothing remained for your mother, or for you when she died. Hasn't Captain Dalton any money either? I asked. He has lately come into a large fortune, she said, and then she told me that he had promised to come again at the same hour tomorrow morning, and take me out with him. Captain Dalton seemed so satisfactory in every way that the mere prospect of walking in the street by his side was enticing. I lay awake that night a long time, wondering where he would take me. When I awoke the next morning, 
and Marion said I was to put on my best clothes which were nothing to boast of, and insisted on washing me herself, putting a quantity of soap into my eyes, oiling my hair, and, in short, doing her best in readiness for Captain Dalton's arrival. Well, Jack, are you ready? he asked, as he entered our room. Rather, I answered, have you got a handkerchief? said Aunt Marion, and I drew it from my jacket as proof. Come along, then, cried Captain Dalton, and I rejoiced to see that he had kept his hansom at the door. The first stoppage on that eventful morning was at the hairdresser's, where I sat in a high chair, enveloped in a loose cotton wrapper, while Captain Dalton smoked a cigarette and a man cut my hair, after which we went to a tailor's, where I was measured for two suits of clothes, having visited a hatter's and a hosier's in turn. We entered a large restaurant, sitting down one on each side of a small table, Captain Dalton leaning across it and reading the bill of fare aloud for my benefit. I think I will have roast turkey, I said, after prolonged consideration, and I accordingly had it, with the accompaniment of sausage and bread sauce, to say nothing of the sweets and the ice which followed, but even what Captain Dalton described as luncheon, and what I regarded as a kind of king of dinners was eclipsed by what came afterwards, for we were driven to a theater, where a comic opera was being played, and at seven o'clock that evening a very tired and sleepy boy, with his right hand tightly clenched on a half-sovereign in his jacket pocket, was deposited on the steps of the house in Acacia Road. During the next few weeks Captain Dalton was a frequent visitor, while, for my own part, I wished that he would come every day. One afternoon he arrived in the rain and stayed to tea. Now, Jack, he said, setting down his empty cup, I should like to hear you read, but as I was bringing one of our small collection of books from the sideboard, he called me away, remember none of that, he cried, with a laugh, something you have never seen before, try the newspaper, although I appeared to win approval by my reading of the extremely uninteresting leading article, he shook his head at the sight of my handwriting whilst he seemed to be astounded by my total ignorance of Latin and French. The fact island he said, it is high time you went to boarding school. Before he left the house that afternoon he had another private conversation with Aunt Marion, and a week or two later he arrived with the announcement that everything had been arranged. Windlesham has been very strongly recommended to me, he explained, the Reverend Matthew Windlesham, to give him his full title. Has he a living? inquired Aunt Marion. Mumber but he has a capital house, with a large garden and a meadow, at a place called Castlemore. Where is that? About a hundred miles from London. Windlesham has a wife and five daughters, and at present there are only six or seven pupils. As Jack is rather backward, it will suit him better than a larger school. So everything was decided, and I fancy that Aunt Marion looked forward to my departure with a satisfaction equal to my own it could scarcely have been greater. Boys and girls were at that time an unknown quantity to us, as were most of their sports and pastimes. It was true that there were scarcely enough of us at Ascot House for football or cricket, nevertheless we did our best in the meadow at the bottom of the garden, our scanty numbers being eked out by Mr. and Mrs. Windlesham's five girls. They were nice, kind people, and, when the first shyness had worn off, I settled down happily at Castlemore. During the next three uneventful years I received occasional visits from Captain Dalton, while I grew greatly in stature, and, it is to be hoped, in knowledge, the holidays were, for the most part, spent with Aunt Marion, 
sometimes in boarding houses at the seaside, sometimes in London, and I had no anticipation of troubles ahead until shortly after I passed my 14th birthday, continued on page 12, the castle light, I wish you would tell me, grandfather, how it was you first thought of building a lighthouse tower, well, comrade, if you will know, you shall hear the story, and Sir Matthew Cairns, as he said these words, looked kindly down into the bright young face uplifted to his own, it was twenty years ago that the thought first came to me that Cairns Castle might serve as a beacon to those far out at sea, the reason for this was that on a certain winter's night a vessel was wrecked on these shores, solely on account of there being no light to warn her of her peril, more than a hundred souls went to their doom, to the joy, it is said, of the wreckers, who made a fine harvest on the coast at daybreak, oh, grandfather, Conrad said with a shudder, how awful, surely we have no such people about now, his grandfather sighed, and, to turn the subject, proceeded to explain to the little lad his method of lighting the lamp, Cairns Castle was an ancient building which overlooked the sea, its isolated position rendering it a very lonely dwelling place, Sir Matthew, its present possessor, though by no means a wealthy man, had spent a considerable sum of money in adding a lighthouse tower to the castle, from the window panes shone forth the gleam so clear and brilliant, that many a gallant seaman was guided safely home thereby, let me light the lamp tonight, grandfather, said Conrad, after listening intently to all Sir Matthew's instructions, perhaps it will guide father and mother on their way home from India, aye, laddie, perhaps it will, the good ship Benares should be nearing our coast by this time, was the reply, then may I grandfather, said Conrad, yes, my boy, and I will look on to see that you do it properly, ah, little did Sir Matthew think, as he said these words, of the incidents which would take place, ere the castle light should next fling its friendly rays across the sea, the November afternoon was creeping on apace, and Sir Matthew, absorbed in thought, drew long whiffs from his pipe, as he sat over the dining room fire, the wine was wild and stormy, and dashed against the window pane with angry force, Conrad, who was busy preparing his lessons for his tutor next morning, looked up anxiously, but the words he was about to say were checked by the entrance of a rough-looking man of the Fisher type, it was William Forrest, or Black Bill as he was called by his neighbors, partly on account of his swarthy appearance, and partly because of his evil deeds, the baronet rose in surprise, wondering at his entering the room and announced, good evening, Forrest, he said, evening, master, was the sullen reply, I have come on business, and I want to see you alone, Sir Matthew bade Conrad take his lessons into the library, whilst he spoke to his visitor, the boy obeyed, and willingly enough, for instinctively he felt that Black Bill meant no good to his dearly loved grandfather, somehow he could not give his mind to his lessons, and at length, thinking the interview must be ended, he returned to the dining room, the sight which there met his eyes made his heart stand still with terror and alarm, his grandfather lay gagged and bound upon the floor, it was the work of a few moments to remove the gag, and when Sir Matthew could find voice, he told the story of his attack, Black Bill, who was in reality a wrecker, for some evil reason of his own, had endeavored to extract from the baronet a promise not to light the lamp that night, upon Sir Matthew's indignant refusal, he, with the aid of two colleagues who were waiting near, had next proceeded to render him helpless, they had already gagged and bound the three old servants of the castle, 
so massive were the walls and lengthy the passages that not a sound had reached Conrad's ears, and the men had apparently forgotten his presence in the castle. The boy, in terrible distress of mind, tried to unloose the cords which bound his grandfather hand and foot. Never mind the cords, Conrad, said the old man at last. They are more than you can manage. Go and light the lamp, for it is already past the hour, and may heaven protect you. Conrad, sick at heart, turn to obey. I will do it, grandfather, he replied, looking fearfully around lest Black Bill and his colleagues should be listening. Then I will come back and help you, he added bravely, with light, fleet footsteps. The little ten-year-old laddie made his way along the passage, towards the staircase. Presently sounds fell on his ears which sent all the color from his face. Black Bill and his comrades were talking together in a room close by, the door of which was open, and to reach the lighthouse staircase he must pass that very room. For a few minutes he crouched in shadow, too panic-stricken to move. He thought of his promise to his grandfather and of the homeward bound Benares battling with wind and wave, then like an inspiration came the thought of him who stilled the waters of Galilee, and who at this moment was watching over him. The lad hesitated no more, on he sped past the open door, towards his goal. But, alas, Black Bill had noted his light footsteps. Stop, boy, he shouted, or it will be the worse for you. But never once paused Conrad. Then the men gave chase, and despair filled the brave young heart. Mercifully in the darkness the men took a wrong turn, and the boy mounted quickly up, 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 until he was safe in the shelter of the lighthouse tower. It took him but a few seconds to turn the key in the lock, and to slip the heavy bolts. Then he was safe from his pursuers. Meanwhile the good ship Benares was tossing on the angry sea, out of its course and in sore peril, with no castle light to guide it home. Then. Almost at the moment of its extremity, shot forth the brilliant gleam, and the gallant vessel was saved save by a little lad's courage and daring. Black Bill, after hammering vainly at the door, at length turned away, muttering threats of vengeance, an hour crept by on leaden wings, and at last, to Conrad's joy, he heard his grandfather's voice calling him by name. In a very short space of time they were face to face, and Conrad heard how that one man, more tender-hearted than the rest, had secretly returned to the castle after Black Bill's departure and freed Sir Matthew from his bonds. Cairns Castle is now falling into decay, and its light no longer exists, but on the coast nearby stands a magnificent lighthouse, which sends forth its life-saving gleam across the sea. Conrad has left boyhood far behind him, and has now little lads and lasses of his own. Many are the stories which their parents have to tell of the once stately home of the Cairns family, but the story the children like best to hear is how father lit the castle light. Am I Hurl, the Indian chief and the bishop, Bishop Whipple, who did so much work among the Indians of North America, tells how a great Indian chief became a Christian. One day, P.W.R.